We are going to take, share together the Lord's Supper communion at the end of our time today. So if you're at home watching, then you can get your stuff ready. Whatever you plan to use might be crackers and orange juice or grape juice or whatever you want, apple juice, water, potato chips, whatever you plan on using. So if you did not get elements when you came in today, they're right there in the lobby. You can get it sometime before the end of the service, and we will uh, share that together as we close out our time together today. I want you to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, not the not First John. The Gospel of John chapter 1. Now, those of you that have known me any length of time, particularly from the Bartlett campus, you know how famous I was for teaching the book of John. I got through chapter 12 before we opened this campus, and it only took me 23 years off and on. That is not what we're going to do in this series that I'm beginning today. We're going to look at Jesus as the I Am. We quote it a lot, John 8.58, before Abraham was, speaking to the Jews, Jesus said, Truly, truly, verily, verily, depending on your translation, New King James, the one the Apostle Paul used, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, before he ever existed, I am. The name God had given to Moses to tell the Hebrews, this is who your God is. He's the great I am. And so, in that statement, along with others, Jesus was simply claiming deity. And that's the theme of the Gospel of John. So what I'm going to do in this, this series, we're going to begin a little differently today, but then we'll, we'll be getting into it. I'm going to look at Jesus' seven statements in the Gospel of John where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am. Seven times he makes statements like that. And so we're going to look at each of those and see how they reiterate and remind us that Jesus is God. And... So I think one of the, the, the reasons that I believe the Lord has laid this on my heart to share with you is that I think it's important for us, it's very, uh, I love to just go read the Gospel of John, uh, something if you don't do on a regular basis, I encourage you to do, just as a devotional time. It's one of the most profound books, if not the most profound book in all of Scripture, but it's also just a uh, in, a very, a real, in a very real way, the most simplistic book, just reading it uh, years ago when I was a young Christian and we were sharing our faith in different ways, they would always tell you when you, when you pray with someone or when someone receives Christ or as a young person, they, they come to know the Lord, just give them a copy of the Gospel of John and just tell them to read it over and over again as a, as a starting point. Yet, some of the most profound theology in all of Scripture it's found in the Gospel of John. In a very real sense, it's kind of a bridge from Old Testament to understanding the New Testament, tying them together and making history make sense for who Jesus of Nazareth was. So that's really the great question we're going to be looking at and answering. Who was this Jesus of Nazareth in this, this series? Because I think, here's my goal for us, for me, is I constantly need to be reminded as we share the Lord's Supper together today the two things we're doing as the body of Christ when we share the Lord's Supper is we're remembering 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're remembering the blood that was spilled, the body that was sacrificed, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed. We're remembering that, because we should never forget. And then the second thing we're doing is we're leaving here to go into our world and proclaim to them that Jesus is the great I Am. That we should not, as the church of Jesus Christ, be ashamed of that. We should not compromise that. We should not back away from it. That our Savior is exactly who he said he was. He said, I and the Father are one. Just that statement alone is incredibly profound. And the Jews in that day understood that. They understood that when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, that he was equating himself with deity. And there are theologians today that say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, they have one problem. They can't read. He said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's just some examples that we're, we're going to look at it. We're going to hit on. And I think, again, my goal for us, for me, is number one, to get the reminder which, number two, will lead us to deeper worship of Christ. Corporately, but individually, daily, ongoing, that I am enamored with who my Savior is, that I'm thrilled that he came and gave his life for me, that I'm excited to tell that to other people. In a culture that desperately is yearning for meaning and purpose and understanding that we can say to them, Jesus comes to offer you peace, hope, joy, purpose in living, a, a true understanding of what it means to be loved and to turn around and love someone else, to be forgiven of your sins. Just that alone. And I know you've heard me talk about this before, but I know in my personal life it's so important. When I pray daily, if nothing else, and there's a lot of things I pray for every day, the one thing I do, and every time I find myself praying, is just thanking God that he deemed me worthy to save me. That he loved me enough that he sent Jesus Christ to die in my place. That Jesus of Nazareth was that significant in my personal life. And then in our lives as a human race, that we can share that good news, the gospel, with other people. So my goal is that we would be reminded of who our Savior is. He is the great I Am, the eternal, we're going to look at today, God of the universe who created it, which will lead us to worship in a much deeper level. I'm talking about seven days a week. And then leads us to a life where we're interested in glorifying Jesus Christ. And what that simply means is that other people will see how much he means to me. That's what sharing the gospel is. Is other people realize that Jesus means that much to Randy. That's what it means to glorify. Give a correct estimate of what something is worth. Perfect example happened this morning. As Madison and Colin are standing there with little Henry Patrick. I love that name. It's just, I don't know if there's any Irish back there, but I love Henry Patrick. What a great name. But I promise you, I could go over to his grandparents and great-grandmother and say, let's talk about Henry. You know how long we'd be there? And he, Henry's what, a year old? Not even that, right? Six months? 
That's why he was born on my, my aunt's 100th birthday. He was born on her 100th birthday. Generation from generation, thou art God. And ask me about one of my grandkids. How long are we going to talk? Until you, of course, you ask me anything, and we're going to talk until you tell me to shut up. But because, why? Because it means that much to me, to them, to us. We love to talk about people that we love. Why do we find it hard to get Jesus beyond our throat? We should love him. He, he put it this way. You should love me so much you hate your parents. Now, some of us teenagers, might, that might not be a problem for them. But clearly what he meant by that hyperbole was, your love for me should dominate your thought life and your life. So that people would no doubt know. You love me. I hope that this will help you get there. If you're not there, and if you are there, that it will generate even more enthusiasm for Christ. One of the things I love about studying theologians going back to the early church, even to today, is read their writings and read how, how much they loved the person of Jesus Christ and how cognizant of they were as a result of their own sin. I'm talking about great men. That they realized how much God loved them because they knew what a sinner they were. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. That God showed me grace and mercy and love. And I want other people to understand that and know that God, know that Savior. That the, the reason the church exists, Jesus told us, real simple. Just go into all the world and make disciples of me, learner, followers of me. Chief end of man is to glorify God, to let people know what he means to me. So what we're going to do today, because I am who I am, Popeye, I am who I am. What we're going to do today is we're going to begin to look for a couple of weeks at the prologue to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, one of the most profound passages of Scripture in all the Bible. Before we get into the I am statements, I want to set the context in which Jesus spoke those statements and John recorded them. So let's look briefly at the Gospel of John itself. Who's the author? Deep right there. All right. What's the difference between John and, say, Matthew or Thomas, or one of the other disciples. Have any idea? What? All right. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. A little arrogant, isn't it? But you know what he meant by that? If you read his epistles, what he meant by that was, I'm the disciple whom I cannot believe Jesus loved me. That's an understanding of your sin nature. I can't believe he loved this. That's what drives me. To, I want to share with people. You need to know how much Jesus loves you. You don't deserve it. Nobody did. So John spent three and a half years, not just three and a half years with Jesus, but he spent three and a half years in Jesus' inner circle. Peter, James, and John were the three men that Jesus had closest to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, the most emotional, agonizing moment in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Who did he have with him? Not his mother. Much as he loved his mom, he had Peter, James, and John. 
He said, I'm going to go over here and pray. And he took them with him. And they let him down. Peter let him down at the fire and denied. Yet Jesus restores him. Jesus loves him. John was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Just that event alone. Just go read it. They got to see a, a glimpse of the glory eternal, what we're going to look at in John, the prologue, the eternal glory of God himself. And they hear the voice of the Father say what? This is my son. Wow. John got to be part of that. At the foot of the cross, as Jesus is dying on the cross and his mother's there, who does Jesus speak to and say, take care of my mom? John. When they were fighting over who gets to sit on Jesus' right hand, who gets to sit on his left hand, and John was one of those. And he appears that word about him. And, and Jesus said, Don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. And then they bring their mama in. Well, what, wait a minute. He knew how much Jesus loved him. And he knew how much he loved Jesus. John wrote Revelation. Can you imagine as God's giving him that? Whoa. Just your mind. He got to write that. So John, at this point, is an old man as he writes the Gospel of John. He's writing it from Ephesus. And the Gospel of John is unique. We have four Gospels in the Bible. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at this point in time, as John writes his gospel, they've already been written. They were written years ago, years prior, and they were circulated among the church. They were well-read. People were very cognizant of them, aware of them, knew what they said. Paul had already written all of his letters. Peter had written his two epistles. What's different about the gospel of John, the synoptic gospels, which means see together, Matthew... Mark and Luke, the synoptic gospels were written to focus on the events and the life of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah or the Christ. Great historical accounts of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, particularly Luke setting the stage so you would understand this happened and this happened and this happened. A chronological account and Matthew and Mark filled in gaps. John does not do that. John doesn't focus on the events themselves, even though he records some events. That's not his purpose. That's not what he's doing. What John focuses on is the meaning behind the events. Simple example. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000. Could have been as many as 20,000 when you include women and children. But the feeding, the, the miraculous feeding of thousands of people with the little lunch. All four Gospels record that event. One Gospel records the sermon after the event. Which one would that be? John. John, the Holy Spirit led John to record what Jesus, the sermon Jesus preached on being the bread of life which we're going to look at, I am the bread of life, after the great miracle. Nothing wrong with what Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. We need that. We study that. We learn from that. That's history. John said, that's great. Also, he records for us the meaning behind the event that Jesus wanted them to understand. I'm the bread of life. John focuses a lot 
more than the other Gospels on Old Testament prophecy. Matthew was written to Jews. John also focuses very much on those prophecies with one specific goal in mind. To remind people when you read the Scriptures, to remind the Jews in particular, as you read the Hebrew Scriptures and you see these prophecies and you see these types of Christ, I want you to understand Jesus is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is the fulfillment of those shadows. Or some things you don't even think about. But it was a big deal to them. For example, Jesus is the serpent on the pole. You remember the story. They lifted the serpent up on the pole, and when they looked to the serpent on the pole, they were what? Delivered from the poisonous snakes. Jesus said, I will be lifted up, and all who come to me will be delivered. He was the serpent on the pole. It was a picture. It was a shadow. Jesus was the fulfillment. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. But John focuses on, for example, Jesus is the Lamb of God. You see right here at the very beginning, the first time John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you were a Jew, did you know who the Lamb of God was? It was Passover. It was your whole focus. So what John the Baptist was saying is, this is the very thing at the Exodus when we left, when our people left Egypt and God established the Passover for us and the picture of it was to come from generation to generation, an everlasting ordinance among the Jews. Jesus is that Passover. As you look at the life of Jesus Christ in the Synoptic Gospels and then in John, when you get to, it's it's structured and, and laid out for us based on Passovers. The three Passovers Jesus celebrated with them. The last one, when you get to the Great Upper Room Discourse, which we're not studying here because we would be here until Jesus came back. But here's what Jesus said. With great desire, I have longed to celebrate this Passover with you. What made this Passover different was it was his last one on earth with them, and it was where God was going to finally fulfill the Passover. The lamb was going to die for the sins of mankind. The blood was going to be spilled, and it was over. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. I fulfilled. I've done, he told them earlier, I've done what the Father sent me to do. So John focuses on those prophecies. But they with, with the temple and the tabernacle, the ladder with Jacob, a uh, picture with Jonah in the fish, three days, as, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. Pictures of Christ, the serpent on the pole we mentioned. Bread, manna in the wilderness. John c- keeps coming back to over and over again things that the Jews would focus on in their scriptures, and he was saying to them, when you read it, now look over there, you see Jesus? It's him. <laughs> Remember that, that, that moment, it's in the Synoptic Gospels, when Jesus is, is, is invited to read as a visiting rabbi, and he reads from Isaiah, and then he lays the scroll down, what does he say? Today, this is what? Fulfilled in your hearing. Man. And yet, as we're going to see, those same Jews, as a race, as a group, as a nation, 
John 1 in the prologue, he says he came into his own, the Jews, and his own did what? Received him not. They rejected him. But as many as received him, this is what's so exciting. We pray this morning for little Henry Patrick that one day he can receive him. For as many as received him, he gave the right, the privilege, the authority to become children of God. As, I t- as I've told you many times, just pause for a moment. Think about that privilege. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and your ensuing repentance and faith in the work that he did, God says to you, you're my child. For good or bad, Randy, you're my boy, and that's it. You're mine. Jesus said, I will have you, and nobody will snatch you out of my hand. See, I know Randy, and I know Randy's sin, and I know Randy's imperfection, and I know how often I let my dad down. But you know what he, you know what he says when I let him down? That's, that's the, God, the way God taunts him. But that Randy, but he's still my boy. I, I, I get goosebumps when I realize one day I get to stand before him. And I hope he'll say, well done, son. But I get in regardless. Why? Because of who my Savior is. Because he is the I am. Not because I am. Because he is. And I, I, I hope it drives you to where it drives me. Just a loving, moment-by-moment worship for who Jesus Christ is. Turn to chapter 20 in John. We're going to come back to chapter 1. Turn to chapter 20, verse 30. Here's where John records his purpose in writing his gospel, and it's a summary statement of the entire gospel, but it sets the context of what we're going to look at. Chapter 20, verse 30. John writes, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. He's going to record these seven great ones, but he says he did many others which are not written in this book, but these are written, the ones that are in the book, that you, quote, may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah the Savior, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Here's why John writes. The others write a synoptic, see-together, historical picture of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Great. John says, I'm writing, I'm writing because I want you to believe that Jesus is God. He's the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. And that by believing in Him, you can have life. Two things. Number one, that Jesus is God. And number two, He's the only place you can go and find life. We're going to talk about that as we walk through these I Am statements in the prologue. That He gives life and light to every human being that enters the planet. But that He also offers to every human being who will come to Him by faith eternal life. And those of us who are Christians... We need to revel in that. If we're going to, as we say, we're going to remember it and then go out and proclaim it till Jesus comes back. How special he is. Jesus said, you must be born again. You're going to be born, obviously, into this life physically. John contrasts the physical relationships with the more important spiritual relationships throughout his gospel. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Jesus is the God 
all Old Testament talked about. He's now here. And he'll give you eternal life. The book of Micah, the verse we quote at Christmas all the time. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, king of the Jews, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Yes, this is the, what we're going to look at in the prologue. Jesus became, God became Jesus of Nazareth the man at a definite moment in time, aorist tense. But he's always been God, eternal, no beginning, no end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I sum it all up. His goings forth are from everlasting. Yes, he will come at a definite moment in time in Bethlehem. But he's always been God. Isaiah from Christmas. Under us a child is born. Bethlehem, moment in time. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary and Joseph. Unto us a son is given, not born, given. Always been God, the gift of God, the son of God. Come to be the son of man, the Messiah. The government will be on his shoulder. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's God. Go back to John chapter 1. Look at verse 27 for a moment. 127. After John goes through his prologue, the first three things he records, the first three scenes he records, he does not record the earthly birth of Jesus of Nazareth, like Matthew and Luke do. He does not. First thing he records, look at Matthew 1, verse 27. John the Baptist speaking. He says, It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John the Baptist was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, quoted in a moment ago, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First thing he records is Jesus' baptism as he enters his, begins his earthly ministry as the Lamb of God, the ultimate fulfillment of Passover. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. 2.11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, made evidence, and his disciples believed in him. It goes from his baptism, presentation as the Lamb of God, manifested his glory to his first recorded miracle, changing water into wine. And notice verse 11 again, in the middle of it, manifested his glory, means made evident or declared. We'll see more about that in the prologue. He didn't change the water into wine just because his mama asked him to even though he was a good son, the perfect son. He changed it from water to wine to manifest his glory. He changed the molecular structure of water to make it something else. And that's the least of the miracles that are recorded. He changed the molecular structure of something. And then later on he'll say to Lazarus, a corpse in the cemetery, Lazarus, come here. And he comes walking out of a tomb. That's what John does. He starts with changing water into wine. And he ends with, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who lives and believes in me, though he may die like Lazarus, yet he will live like Lazarus. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. That's John, the gospel. Miracle after miracle after miracle, building crescendo to I am the resurrection. You come to me, you believe in me, you're going to live forever. You don't have to worry about death. Every human being that's ever walked planet Earth or ever will walk planet Earth wants that. They want to know I don't have to be afraid to die. Because how many of them are going to die? Every one of them. And Jesus said, I have the keys to death and hell. You don't have to worry about it if you're in me, because I have the keys. I'm the keeper of the keys. Look at chapter 2 while we're there, verse 19. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will what? Raise it up. The Jews said, man, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? He was speaking of the temple of his body. And we will see. John will tie together for us that little phrase, temple, body, tabernacle. The word tabernacle means dwell. God gave the children of Israel a building, a tent, a temporary dwelling place called the tabernacle, where God met them. It's called the tent of meeting in the Old Testament as you read it. God met them at the tabernacle. He tabernacled with them. It's actually a verb. He dwelt. That's what it means. He dwelt with them. What's John 1.14 say in the prologue? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is tabernacle. So God gave them the tabernacle temporarily. By the way, it's really cool. You know how long they had the tabernacle? 33 years. How long did Jesus live on planet earth? 33 years. Think that's an accident? I don't. Because God's sending a message. Tabernacle with me. Here. Then he gave them the temple. We'll see what Solomon said about that. Then he gave him God himself. Jesus walked around with him for 33 years. Then you go fast forward to the eternal state and reading Revelation. When we get to heaven, when we all get, we're going to sing when we all get there. When we, when we all get to heaven, I'm not singing anything. You know what the Bible tells us there? God will tabernacle with us and it will be illuminated by the light of the Lamb. Wow. Again, goosebumps. Your Savior, my Savior, the one we remember, the one we proclaim when we get to heaven, it will simply be illuminated. No sun, no moon, no stars, no light. It will be illuminated because He is there. He is the light of the world. I am. We're going to look at that. I am. That's why it's so important we as a society understand those two great things I've told you now for several years. The two great truths in the universe are what? There is a God, and you ain't it. You need to come to the one who is God who says, I am, because he loves you. and He gave himself for you, to give you everything you were created to have and to be in Jesus Christ. As I was preparing for this, and really been looking at it for several weeks, and praying about 
how profound a book this is. And I just went back and started reading theologians over history of what they said about the Gospel of John. I just want to read you a couple of quotes about what people said, different theologians throughout history. Leon Morris said this, John's Gospel is a pool in which a child can wade and an elephant can swim. It is both simple and profound. It is, it is for the earliest believer and for the mature Christian, end quote. Warren Wiersbe, many great books, said this when he was writing his commentary on the Gospel of John. During the months that I have been studying the Gospel of John and writing this book, I have felt like a man standing on holy ground. The more I studied and wrote, the more inadequate I felt. No wonder the great Greek scholar, Dr. A.T. Robertson, called the Gospel of John, quote, the profoundest book in the world, end quote. And then one more, Elmer Towns, a book I read years ago about John, said this. John's the greatest book in the Bible. You give it to the new Christian because of its straightforward simplicity. You give it to the scholar because of its deep, profound mysteries. You give it to all because its message is Jesus Christ. It's the greatest book in the Bible because when honestly encountered, the reader will come to realize, that Je- realize Jesus as his Lord and God. He will fall to his knees and worship the person of the book, Jesus Christ, end quote. That's my goal for us. And I love you guys, and I know many of you very well, and I know you love Jesus. And as of last month, I've been a Christian, have been a Christian for 51 years. And yet every time I read the Gospel of John, I fall more in love with Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, is what he wants. That's what he wants. Mary and I have been married 48 years in August. She asked me the other day, she goes, has it been that long? We started dating 51 years ago, about this time of year. And she told me then, 1970, we will get married one day. And you know what, at 16 years old, what was my response? Ah, too cool to get married. Three years later, we were married. And yet, as difficult as this last year has been in her personal life physically, and all that she's had to go through, I love and appreciate my wife much more today than I did a year ago. Watching her, listening to her, never blaming God, just saying, it hurts, Lord, what do I do? I love you. Man, what a testimony. I'm not sure I could do that. I can learn from it and have and realize how privileged I am to have the wife that I have. I know you, some of you understand this. It's real hard to be a preacher's wife because she knows what a sinner I am. You know, we were talking about spiritual gifts in my 930 class. The spiritual gifts come into two major categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. And in the church, who gets all the praise and the honor and the glory? Should be Jesus. But so many times it's the people that are up front with the speaking gifts. With the people with the serving gifts... Just as important, Paul went out of his way to emphasize, just as important. Matter of fact, the greater honor is bestowed on those who don't get the honor. And I need to realize how blessed I am 
in so many ways. And John will do that for you. The Gospel of John will drive you. Just John 13, the first four verses, five verses. Jesus said, knowing, my hour, knowing his hour had come, he was about to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world and fulfill all the prophecy in history, the, the climax of history. Knowing his hour had come, what did he do? He got up and got down on his hands and knees and washed their feet. Couldn't you, you, you could see me saying, you know, guys, I, I'm busy. I got things to do. I, I, I'm going to die on the cross tomorrow. But instead, he showed them servanthood, knowing they had to serve each other for this thing to work. He got down and washed their feet. And then he said, now let's talk for a little while about what I need you to do after I'm gone. Well, where are you going? You know, we don't know where you're going. I'm the way, the truth, on and on. At John 13 through 17, it's my favorite passage in the entire Bible, just to read it and be reminded of how profound it is to be a Christian, yet how simple it is because of who Jesus is. So go back to chapter 1. We're not getting on the outline today. You figure that out? I know some are going, look at this outline. There's no way in West Memphis we're doing this. If you know me, you know that's the way it is. We will get there. So what we're going to look at to make us remember, worship, live, glorify, in this prologue, who is this Jesus? Where did he come from? What's this all about? Who is he? Look at John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? A man at a definite moment in time stepped into history as God the Son, Emmanuel, God with us, the most shattering man in the history of the human race, the most radical man in the history of the human race, the most discussed, debated, argued about man in the history of the human race, the most remembered, the most chronicled. Man in the history of the human race. Anybody, you know what John says? Well, let me take you a little further, folks. John says he's God eternal. No beginning. No end. Look at number one on your handout. I'm going to hit this, and then we're going to close our time out together and go into the time of the Lord's Supper. He is eternally the Word. John doesn't begin, as we said earlier, with the birth of Jesus Christ. He begins with Jesus' eternality. Last point I want to make today, and then I want to go into the Lord's Supper, because this is so important. You look at the top of your handout, it says Jesus is the Word. We get it's Greek, it's logos, L-O-G-O-S. We'll talk a lot about what that means next time we're together. But here's the point. John begins with his eternality because if he's not eternal God, then he was a liar. If he's not eternal God, he cannot be your savior. He's a con man, a charlatan, just another religious nut who people followed because he could do some magic tricks. But if he's eternal God, if he is eternal God, then he created you. He knows you. He loves you and he will judge you because he is the great I am. What's exciting about that is when you understand that that's who he is and he saved you, then you say, I want to serve him. 
You see, people who are born again and love Christ don't have to be guilted into doing Christ-like things. They just do them because that's who they are. That's who they are. Paul, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become what? New. And that word new means as never seen before. When I got saved and I went back into the same home, same two parents and same two brothers, but I no longer looked at them the same way. It was different. Because I under, I, now, did I handle it well? No, not at first. Not well at all. But I knew, there was a, I, knew, I knew the difference. Because I was so excited that God had saved me and I wanted people to know it. I just didn't handle it well. So here's my encouragement to you as we get ready to pray and go into the time of the Lord's Supper. Your Savior died for everybody you know, family and otherwise. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is he's not through saving people. And everybody here and everybody watching, I guarantee you, probably in your own family, but at least people in your close circle of friends and or family, you know people who are not Christians. And you don't want Jesus to come back until they're saved. Because you care about them. But he can save them. That's who your Savior is. He's the great I Am. He's the eternal expression of God's mind, he's the word. Bow your head, please. Father, as we close out our time together sharing the Lord's Supper, I pray today especially, based on what we've talked about, we would remember, especially remember who our Savior is, Jesus of Nazareth. We pray in his name. Amen. The worship band is going to lead us, and what I'd like you to do during this time is just spend it alone, praying with your Lord, thanking Jesus for who he is, what he did for you individually, dealing with sin that may be in your heart and your life, confessing. And then when they get through leading us this time of worship, I'll come back and we'll share the Lord's Supper together.
We get ready to take the Lord's Supper. If you need uh, these really high-class elements that we have, if you don't have it, Chad's got some back there. You can just kind of slip your hand up, and Chad will be more than happy to give it to you. You don't have to be a member of Christ Church or attend here to share the Lord's Supper. Believers, this is Jesus' table, not ours. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we're celebrating together. We're remembering. Let me read to you. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take your bread in remembrance of Christ. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The cup. Let's pray, and then I'm going to ask Mike to come up and close us in final prayer. Father, we thank you for the death the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we get to remember, may we never forget, not just have it in our mind, but have it in the forefront of our mind, that it is our life to remember our Savior and then proclaim his death till he comes, that it's a privilege. We pray in his name. Amen. Let Mike close us in prayer and can tell you about chairs and that kind of thing. Ha, ha, ha.